Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Before we begin, a warning that today's episode contains details of suicide, sexual violence, and murder, which some listeners may find distressing. A friendly man, popular with his neighbours, retired gendarme François Verove had a neat beard, a walking stick, he'd had a motorcycle accident some years back, and a cheerful disposition. Every weekend he could be seen taking his grandchildren for a visit to the beach. During Covid, when people couldn't leave their homes, he would do shopping for them. He just seemed like a friendly, pleasant, retired policeman who was an upstanding member of the local community. Three decades earlier, and 450 miles away, in and around the outskirts of Paris, a string of rapes and murders had been committed, apparently by the same person, and had never been solved. In December 2014, a new investigating magistrate was appointed, and she, like anyone coming in, took a fresh look at the case. And soon, she was about to crack it. But how? and what led her team to a retired policeman in the south of France. People who I've spoken to who knew him were just as stunned as his own family were to discover that he had been responsible for these killings and for these rapes. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, gendarme, father, rapist, murderer. The story of François Verove. One Monday last September, a retired gendarme policeman called François Verove, 59 years old, set off from his home in a place called La Grande Motte, which is near Montpellier in the south of France. That's Sunday Times Europe editor Peter Conradi. It's a seaside resort, a sort of a fairly upmarket place. He lived in a nice development there. And he, he told his wife that he had some chores to do So he set off on his electric bicycle and he didn't come back that evening, which obviously worried his wife. The next morning, he still hadn't come back. She began really to get worried. She began talking to her daughter, who was in her 30s and was a sort of police officer like her father had been. By Wednesday, when he still wasn't there, she was really desperate. She and the daughter managed to track him down thanks to a geolocation device in his mobile phone. 
they found that he'd gone about five miles along the coast to a place called Le Gros du Roi, where it seems he had rented an Airbnb. They saw his bicycle parked outside the building. They didn't know quite what to do. They called the fire brigade. The fire brigade came along, broke into the building. Inside, they found his body stretched out on a bed. Beside him, there was a bottle of alcohol and an empty packet of painkillers. Next to him, on the table, there was a note addressed to his wife, a confession. In it, he described himself as having been a great criminal who'd committed unpardonable acts. And he went on to say, I've hurt people, I've killed innocent people. And then there was a second note, not really addressed to anyone, that said simply, do not resuscitate. And at this point, of course, they have no idea what it is that he's talking about. Absolutely no idea. But it turns out that actually he has been a big criminal. And in summary, how big a criminal does it turn out that he's been? It turns out that he had been probably one of France's most wanted men. Someone the French police had been looking for for more than 30 years, who'd completely dominated the media for many, many years, who was known as Le Grelet, the pockmarked man, who it turns out had been responsible for at least four murders, six rapes, and possibly many more. It turned out that this former policeman, former gendarme, was France's most notorious serial killer. Extraordinary. So let's now go back to the beginning. Who was François Merov? Well, François Verov was born in 1962 in the north of France, fairly ordinary kind of family. He had a slightly difficult relationship with his father. It's since transpired, but I mean, nothing very dramatic. He joined the gendarmerie. They're a branch of the army, but they carry out serious police duties in France. He was quite a smart young man. There was a, a kind of an open competition to join the gendarmerie. He succeeded in it. He moved to Paris and he became a member of the Garde Républicaine, which was quite a prestigious section of the gendarmerie that, that guarded important public buildings, such as the Elysee Palace, where the, the president lives, other buildings of that kind of importance. He'd been really passionate about motorbikes since he was young. But curiously, he didn't join the motorbike division. He in instead joined the cavalry. He learned to ride a horse and he was part of the, the unit which would escort the then president around Paris and, and, and other dignitaries. At the age of 23, a couple of years after he joined the gendarmerie, he married a, a young woman called Isabel, who came from a neighbouring village in the north of France and who'd followed him to Paris. But there were some questions about how good his marriage was from the beginning and also quite where his interests lay. Slightly euphemistically, one of the French newspapers that reported on this case said there were questions about what they said was his morality. And by morality, there was apparently an incident in the Bois de Boulogne in Paris, which is fairly notorious for its prostitutes. So the suspicion is that he was found there using prostitutes. So as a result of that, 
He was demoted from the cavalry to the infantry, which was certainly a step down. Then, in 1988, he left the gendarmerie completely, joined the police, its motorcycle division. He and his wife had a couple of children. They had a daughter. Then three years later, they had a son. Then at the turn of the century, very, very suddenly, unexpectedly, he moved from Paris down to near Marseille, moved from one job to another, still in the police, until he took early retirement. So there he is, apart from these one or two doubts because of this incident in the Bois de Boulogne, for which he got demoted, essentially he has a career like many other police officers and gendarmerie people in France. He does, although there is something odd about moving from the gendarmerie to the police. It's, it's a move down, it's a sign perhaps that something has not gone completely right with your career. And looking back, we might think that he was getting away from something. Certainly getting away from something. Also, interestingly, in retrospect, some of his former colleagues have come forward. And there was a period in the late 1980s when one of his former police colleagues described that Verov had sort of moments of crisis when he would come to the office in a in a terrible state, he'd be pale, he'd be trembling, he'd have a fleck of foam on his lips. This colleague tried to help, but Verov resisted, which, like so much else with the benefit of hindsight, one thinks, what was going on? What was he struggling with at this moment? Right. As far as we now know, what was the first crime that Verov can be linked to? The first crime was an eight-year-old girl whom he attacked, raped, and left for dead in April of 1986. But the real attention, I think, was on his first killing, which happened just over a month later, which was of an 11-year-old girl called Cecile Bloch. Now, Cecile lived with her parents, who were both social security inspectors, in a flat in the Rue Petit in the northeast of Paris. Fairly normal kind of area, a normal Parisian block of flats. La Rue Petit, dans le 19e arrondissement. Des grands ensembles modernes où logent 850 personnes. Cecile habitait au troisième étage du 116 avec ses parents. Every morning, the two parents would go to work about eight o'clock or so, and normally speaking, their daughter would leave about 45 minutes later. Now, normally speaking, Cecile would come back home at lunchtime, and her mother, just to check up with her, typically every lunchtime would just ring home, her daughter would answer the home phone, and she would just check that she was fine. That day, the mother called, and no one answered the phone. She got worried, she called her husband, both of them went back to the flat. They found absolutely no trace of their daughter. They called the school. The school said that Cecile hadn't been in that day. They then retraced their daughter's walk to school, asked the various shopkeepers along the way whether they'd seen her or not. No one seemed to have seen her. They got back to the block of flats. The concierge started to search the building, started at the top, went all the way down into the basement, and there 
under some old carpet in an area that was normally used for just storing rubbish was the lifeless body of their daughter, Cecile. That crime obviously would have caused a huge uproar, but went unsolved. Yes. Now, this crime was significant because when the the police arrived, and I I spoke to one of the policemen, Bernard Pasqualini, who was a group leader in the Brigade Criminelle, is now long since retired. I mean, he was from the Quai des Orfèvres, which is like France's answer to, to Scotland Yard. He arrived and questioned the family. He became convinced that everything had been fine at home. He questioned Luc Richard Bloch, the half-brother of Cécile. And he mentioned that as he had been leaving the building that morning, he'd seen a man lurking around the lift, a man he'd never seen before, mid to late 20s. And when he was asked to describe this man whom he'd seen, the one thing he said that really stood out about him was the acne all over his jaws. This found its way into the press, and he was immediately baptized le grêlé, which means essentially the pockmarked man. Du grêlé a été identifié, il s'agit... avait été surnommé le grêlé, l'un des plus vieux cold cases, comme on dit, de la... Serial killer, serial agresseur sexuel qui était recherché très activement. Sonné et que les enquêteurs progressaient dangereusement dans l'affaire le grêlé. So, the pockmarked man then wasn't found and Verove goes on to commit another crime. He next committed a crime in April the following year, 1987. Horrific crime, but very different crime. Essentially, the police were called to a a flat in central Paris in in the Marais, sort of fairly fashionable kind of part of town. Inside, they found two bodies. One of a man called Gilles Politi, who was aged 38. He was an engineer for Air France and a 21-year-old German woman called Irmgard Müller, who was the au pair for the family. She had been tied to the bed as if she'd been crucified. He was in another room, stretched out on a bed with his hands and, and feet tied up. Both had been tortured with a lighted cigarette and a knife. Irmgard had also been raped. Absolutely horrific scene, you know, a double murder in a Parisian flat. Police went through various things that they found in the flat. In particular, they looked at Irmgard Müller's possessions and they found a notebook in which she had ranked the sexual performance of 30 lovers together with their addresses. So police worked their way down the list, checking alibis one by one. They were able to tick off these men until they were left with just one name, a man called Elie Lorange, who had been added the previous December. Alongside it, Muller had put a note indicating he'd been a pretty lousy lover. Now, it quickly became clear that Lorange was not his real name, Uh, and that the address that she had written for Lorange was just an abandoned, squatted building, which curiously, back in the 1970s, had belonged to the prefecture of police. And years later, the cases were linked, thanks to DNA, 
And it turned out that Elie Lorange was none other than François Verhove. But, of course, at this point, these look like very, very different crimes. I imagine that the police are not looking for a serial killer for these particular crimes. Well, they were completely different. I mean, normally speaking, a serial killer will tend to target the same kind of victim. So I would think from him, initially, the attack on Cécile Bloch, other rapes that he carried out were of young girls. Whereas here we have an adult man and... 21-year-old woman. So very, very different. Coming up, the Popmark killer continues his war on women. But first, a message from a colleague. Hello, I'm Jane Mulcairns, Associate Editor of The Times magazine. By listening in, you make it possible for me to bring you exclusive stories that you won't get anywhere else. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Paris, the autumn of 1987, and François Verhoeve struck again, this time using the foil of investigating a drug operation to force his way into an apartment block. A 14-year-old girl called Marianne was stopped as she was walking home from school by a man claiming to be a policeman who forced his way into the family flat, tied her up at gunpoint, raped her and left her for dead. The description that she gave of the man who'd attacked her matched the identical picture that had been drawn up of Le Grelet, the pockmarked man. But despite the fact that they found trace of the assailant's sperm, blood, even a cigarette end on the ground near her, the police had no way of directly tying the two cases together because this was 1987, 
there was no DNA analysis in those days. There was not really much CCTV of anything. So what we have is a description, and now two things together. We have a pockmarked man, and we now have a policeman. And they don't necessarily link them. There isn't any real belief that there's a serial killer at work. And Peter, at this point, Verhove actually stops committing crimes for a while, doesn't he? What's what's going on? There was a pause of several years. This also coincides with the birth of his daughter in 1988, the birth of his son in 1991. It could well be that fatherhood had changed him, or it seemed that fatherhood perhaps had changed him, but only temporarily. So he becomes a father for the first and then for the second time, and there's a significant pause, as far as we know, in his career of killing and raping people. And then it picks up again. When and how does that happen? That happens in June 1994, when within the space of about three weeks, we have two attacks. A 19-year-old girl called Karine Leroy, who was on the way to school in a place called Mont-Sur-les-Maux, who was abducted. And just over a month later, her body was found lying on the edge of a wood a few miles away. She'd been raped and she'd been strangled by a plastic strip, which had been tightened by a stick behind her neck. I mean, effectively like a kind of a garrote. Now, between her killing and the discovery of her body, he'd struck again, not that far away from where Karine Leroy had been killed, when an 11-year-old, who was named only as Ingrid, was stopped by a man who'd identified himself as a police officer. He handcuffed her, ordered her into his car, and drove her all the way to the opposite side of Paris, more than 40 miles away, to a farm in a place called Saclay. And after he'd raped her, she managed to get away. She ran, got help, and she then described to police what had happened to her. And it became pretty clear that she had fallen victim to the same man who had already raped several girls and who'd killed Cecile Bloch. Now, at this point, the police know they're dealing with a a man who has committed multiple crimes. But they are still no closer to catching him. The theory that the investigators have is that this is essentially someone who's been impersonating a policeman um, and who's been using this as a means of persuading people to go with him so he can attack them. A number of identikit pictures of him have been published all over the papers, but nobody, certainly not his colleagues in the gendarmerie or the police, seem to realise that François Verhove was le vrai. And his family don't suspect anything at all either? No, no suspicion whatsoever. Those, as far as we know, are the last of his crimes, aren't they? There are suspicions he was also responsible for other crimes, but as far as cases that have been definitely linked With him, yeah, that was the last one. Do we know anything about his character from his early life which would have given anybody a suggestion of the man he became? He had a slightly troubled childhood. He had a slightly overbearing father. 
But there was nothing, nothing curious about him, nothing that particularly stood out. And I mean, people who I've spoken to who knew him were just stunned as his own family were to discover that he had been responsible for these killings and for these rapes. So the next aspect of this story, which is really extraordinary, is that he then moves and stops. Um, I think it would be nice if you take us through how his life changes and also through how strange it is that somebody who has somehow got so much out of these terrible acts just then says, I'm not going to do it anymore. That is the really weird thing about this case, because normally serial killers just don't stop or they don't stop voluntarily. They perhaps get caught by the police. They perhaps kill themselves because they can't live with what they've done. Or maybe they just die of natural causes. But what appears to have happened with François Verov is that he stopped killing, but that he lived on for almost two more decades afterwards and didn't kill again around 2000 or so. He just completely changed his life. He and his wife left Paris. They moved more than 500 miles to the south of France. His two children were still teenagers. They came with him. By then, he'd grown a beard, tellingly perhaps, because one couldn't see the the acne over his chin, which had given him his this nickname of the pockmarked man to start with. He was still with the police. He was based initially near Marseille. He stayed there for a little bit. He then moved around quite a lot. Then he had an accident in about 2011. He was riding his, his motorbike on the way to work and he got knocked off the bike and he was effectively invalided out of the police. Then he moved to a place called Pradlelay, smallish village of about 6,000 or so people. He and his wife bought some land. They built themselves a very large house in this village. He made a very good impression on the local mayor who was keen to use his talents. So he became involved in various kind of community projects, even stood on the the mayor's electoral list and he became a local councillor. But then quite curiously, despite having built this house there, and obviously invested a lot of time and money in doing so, they left, went about 45 minutes drive further south on the coast, but again was remembered by the neighbours as being a pleasant chap who helped out the local community during Covid when people couldn't leave their homes to, to get shopping or whatever. He would do shopping for them. He appeared very, very fond of his grandchildren. He was always out playing with them. He just seemed like a friendly, pleasant, retired policeman who was an upstanding member of the local community. Now, sometime after he retired and he doesn't know about it, a big change happens in the way in which the unsolved cases for which he's responsible are being looked at. Maybe, Peter, you now take us to that. What happens? It's been years and years since these killings had been carried out. The investigators were no closer to finding the the culprit. And there'll be no fewer than eight investigating judges who'd been appointed to the case 
one after the other, tried to make progress, hadn't made progress. In December 2014, a new investigating magistrate was appointed, a woman called Natalie Turke, and she, like anyone coming in, took a fresh look at the case. Her reasoning essentially was, all these years, everyone has been working on the assumption that he was someone who was pretending to be a policeman. But Natalie Turke came up with a new theory. Maybe he was a member of the police or actually a gendarme rather than just pretending to be, which meant a completely different way of looking at the case. And as part of that, she took the extraordinary step of going through all the files to look at police gendarme who'd been working anywhere near where the victims had disappeared, who were sort of in the right age group. Eventually, she and her colleagues came up with a list of 750 names. 750? 750. They then decided to work through these 750 names and take DNA samples from each of them. By then, thankfully, DNA technology had moved on considerably since the 1980s and 90s. They had samples of the killer's DNA, which had been taken at the time of the killings, and they were now in a position where they could go through and see if they could find a match. So how does that process lead to him? He received a summons from the local police in Montpellier on the Friday before he set off from his home, telling him he should come to that police station the following Wednesday because they were looking into a crime that had been committed many, many, many years ago, and they just wanted to make sure that he wasn't associated with it. He obviously immediately knew what this was about, what this meant for him, and he never went to the police station. He knew that it meant that almost 30 years later, the game was up. He had managed all those years to get away with it, but now it was pretty clear to him that the game was up almost immediately once they'd analysed his DNA sample, they would know that he was Le Grillet. Peter, I'm really struck by one aspect of what you've told me, which is that this new judge, there have been plenty before, comes in and asks the obvious question. The fact that previous investigators had simply not wanted to think it could have been a police officer, despite the fact that that was one obvious line of inquiry. And the suspicion that he's carried out other crimes has been also intensified by the wording of the suicide note which he left. Because in the note, he said that he hadn't carried out any further crimes since 1997. But the problem is that the last reported crime we have for him was 1994, which immediately begs the question, well, what was he doing between 1994 and 1997? Are there other killings that the police either don't know about or which they know about, but which they haven't linked with him. It's an absolutely extraordinary and also a very worrying story. What has the reaction been in France? The reaction was enormous. The case was one of those that everyone knows about, even if it happened years before they were born. So the very fact that he'd been caught was relief, obviously, but it was coupled also with a considerable degree of anger and criticism of the police that... 
one of their own had been carrying out these crimes and that no attempt had been made to apprehend him. But it's also been accompanied by an awful lot of speculation about how many other people did he kill, how many other people did he attack, how many other unsolved cases can be laid at his door. So that's a mystery which we yet don't have the answer to. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Sunday Times Europe editor, Peter Conradi. You can read more of Peter's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer was Oliver Adamson, the executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. If you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough, Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.